Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and thank you for joining me for episode 80 of Inside AgriTurf and I'm delighted and intensely proud that episode 80 is being published on the 27th of October 2022, my 80th birthday. Now I've thought long and hard about how I should frame this episode without being too indulgent. And after 60 years working in the agricultural and turf care machinery market, that's tractors, mowers and that sort of thing, and not the most headline grabbing of products, I've decided to latch on to an idea that I've had for some time, an episode about the birth of a brand. Now for my part, after working at the sharp end of the agri-turf machinery industry uh, for over 25 years, I never lost my inner desire to become a journalist. And so in 1988, with no previous experience, I decided to launch a magazine. The first issue was pretty rudimentary, and this, remember, was the days before the internet and electronic communications. But gradually, issue two improved on issue one and so on, and I spent the following 30 years refining and refining before a few years ago selling the title to a bigger family-owned publishing company with more resources than I, who have taken that magazine, a service dealer, to be the most prestigious business title in the sector, highly regarded in the UK and overseas. And I am indeed proud of creating the service dealer media brand. Now, when you start a magazine, it's always good to have a meaty story to get your teeth into, and my guest today certainly fits the bill. Harry Hankammer ran an engineering company making attachments exclusively for a garden tractor manufacturer, who overnight cancelled the arrangement, which virtually wiped out the lion's share of his business at a stroke. And this is 1990, and so he decided that if they wouldn't buy his attachments, he would design and build his own garden tractor, which he did, going into production from scratch in little over three months. And so the Cantax brand was born, and within a few short years, he had gained market leadership. There's more to it than that, of course, and my catch-up with Harry lasted well over an hour as we rolled back the years. So I've decided to split this into two episodes, the first dealing with the first two formative years. So Harry, look, it's really great to catch up. Uh, Let's go back to the years BC, before Cantax, and... What what was your background? Well, that yeah, that was that was um, looking back it was quite interesting for me because I never knew the direction I would of travel and where I would end up. It wasn't like I had some master plan. But my first major interest in garden machinery was um, starting to work with the founder of Westwood, and he he and I just got on like a house on fire. I was um, I was working with him having done an engineering apprenticeship and run a small garden grass cutting business. And I worked with him through the winter when he was building up his product. Uh, and we're talking uh, about Jerry, Jerry Hazelwood. Jerry we? Hazelwood, yeah. And Jerry, Jerry persuaded me to move to Plymouth, in fact, help him move to Plymouth where he got a contract. So I was part of the Westwood team, if you like, that built that product. And I got in that in the early 70s, funnily enough, we, we had tremendous fun because he had a, you know, he's building a new factory, he's building a new product. And really I got to know everything that Westwood ever did because I was part of it. And I ended up being his works director at the silly age of about 24. Mm-hmm. But I was always a bit, I, I was always hung up on motorsport 
uh, as was Jerry, actually. He was a racing driver, a good racing driver, and his brother. And I wanted to get back, uh, actually, to back to sort of the Buckinghamshire area where it's close to Silverstone and Brands Hatch and all that stuff. So I worked with him up until, I think, 78. And then what, was, had, what were their What were their flagship products at that day, Brands? Well, they had uh, they had a, a very nice little machine called a Lawnbug, yeah. which you sat on. It was only twenty four inch single blade, but oh, I remember it well. A yeah. Very good racing lawnmower. Yes, yes. I got when I first met Sterling in seventy six or seventy seven. We re- we did the twenty four hour Risborough Green Charity Lawnmower Race with Derek Bell. I actually, yep. saw Derek the other day, and he all he wanted to talk about while well, he was sat in his Porsche nine five six at the Classic at Silverstone was lawnmower race. <laughs> Very funny, because that's where he had also met Sterling. And I maintained a good relationship with Sterling forever after that. But he, so that was in that, that about probably a year later, uh, I decided I wanted to get back. And Jerry didn't have a dealer in High Wycombe. And I found some premises and we opened a, a garden machinery show. Very quickly found other products to sell, including Mountfield and we designed a, a control, a throttle control for lawnmowers, which I eventually put in another factory. So leading up to the, the Countax thing, I'd had a good experience of manufacturing with Westwood, then a very good relationship with all the staff, obviously. I then started this retail business and became their largest garden tractor seller in the UK. I mean, I say that tongue in cheek because Robin Nettle down at Winchester Garden Machinery, bless him, had five dealerships. And he used to always tell me he sold 20 more than me. But we only had one. And we used to retail about 300 machines a year, which is phenomenal for a garden tractor dealership. We were very focused. We didn't sell anything else other than all the other products. And then in, in, uh, in, in the early 80s, we, we opened another factory with the throttle control business and supplied pretty much most lawnmower manufacturers around Europe, because then you could only buy them from America, uh, which was very difficult because you had to import huge volumes. So we very quickly started to make very large volume of controls and sell them around the world. I I then, um, when I was retailing, I could never get my hands on the accessories. So the things that went behind the garden tractor are really quite useful, like grass collectors and rollers and dump Sweepers and so on, yeah. Couldn't get them for love and money. And an opportunity came up. But what was that, Harry? Was nobody making them or, or, well, or what? They were all designed and available, but they were either extremely expensive or in the case of Westwood, they weren't expensive, but you just couldn't get them because the tractor always took priority. So I started, uh, I persuaded, or he persuaded me, I can't remember which way around it was. Jerry and I decided we would, there was a little plant which Mountfield occupied at the time, the lawnmower manufacturer, and they'd been using it for engines. They decided they wanted to get out of it. So we took it over and I, I started. And we're talking about Great Haisley, are we? Yeah, we're at Great Haisley. So it was a small, it was a, it was a building that backed onto the Forestry Commission and it was rented. And we, we started making accessories and realised that all of a sudden there was this enormous market for accessories if you had them in stock so we started selling almost twice as many accessories as we did garden tractors so if you like two for one so if you were building ten thousand tractors a year we were making twenty thousand accessories a year so you were a dealer at the same time and you yeah. were also the manufacturer of, of, of attachments and selling to dealers presumably i didn't sell them no i built them purely for westwood so okay. they were my sole customer 
Right. And then we also made a walk behind lawnmower and we began to become a proper manufacturer of garden machinery in our own right, but not really a brand. We designed a diesel diesel walk behind with a variable speed transmission in it. So it was quite technical and out front deck. And that was really the basis of how the garden tractor engineering took place because it was a big deck. You need a lot of power. You needed to a good transmission and a good engine and all the rest of it. So we we kind of had the engineering under our belt. And um, opportunity came to sell the throttle control business at about in about 88 American company called Capro. And literally, as I sold that business, Westwood got sold. To, to, to ransom. ransoms, yes. And when that happened, uh, very quickly, we discovered they weren't that bothered about accessories. And Westwood had a lot of stock uh, because the business model was simply, we produced it, they stocked it. And once it's in stock, you start to sell it because as a dealer, you know you can sell it and get it. The moment you know you can't get it, you don't bother because it's just hassle. People keep phoning you up, where's that trailer I ordered? So we, we having doubled the business and then they then decided that they wanted to reduce their stock levels, I really sort of saw the writing on the wall, thought, well, we'll be back where we started. If it's not available, people aren't going to try and sell it. And I went to Texas, I went to Houston to finish off the deal with this throttle control business with Capro, part of the Teleflex Corporation. And Bob Gross, the CEO, uh, knew I was at a bit of a loose end. He was training my wife, who'd run the throttle control business most of the time. And I said to him, look, can I use your, you find me a little office with a copying machine in it because I, I want to send some stuff to my factory. <laughs> so, so you had this sort of eureka moment, um, yeah. which was caused really by the uh, Westwood situation. Had they actually told you that at that stage mm-hmm. that they were taking away the uh, attachment business from you? Oh, yeah. They, they, well, they almost uh, took it away overnight because they Did just they? got too much stock. And we don't really want to order any more for the next month or the month after, which is, you know, wouldn't have killed us dead, but it would have been painful and would have would have had to have lost people and skills. And I, I read it was about seventy five percent of your business. Was that about right? Oh yeah, all of that. They okay, all of that. Yes, and uh, of course by then it wasn't the, the Westwood product hadn't been particularly developed. And there were a lot of opportunities in the product, you know, things like the blade engagement could have electric clutch and power takeoff could be separate. And the steering was always a bit clunky and not, you know, we could put, we could, we, we saw opportunities and I hadn't really discussed it with any of my development team or my staff, but I had this, yeah, it was a Euromedica moment, to be honest, Chris, I was sat on the plane going out and um, I, I suddenly thought, Actually, you know, if we did a walkthrough design, which I don't know if anybody else had done that, you used to have to sort of climb on a garden tractor uh, instead of walk onto it. Anyway, the, going back to the Capro story, um, sat in Bob Gross's office, I started doing sketches. And in those days, we didn't have CAD anyway. But I had good designers and I had good, good old school engineers. And I started sending sketches and making a few calls. And I said, look, I'm going to be away. We're on holiday for another 10 days or something i'm gonna be away when i get back can you try and get me a mock-up of this chassis with this on it and that (laughs) we only had a very short window because that was july and the window was the next annual show that was our that was our timeline and i'd said to the guys this is going to be a mad rush but we need 
you know, two or three different engine size models at that show. Um, so we better make a start because I don't want to lose the next 10 days. And I'll find you the bits from around the world to fit on them. You used to do the metal work. And we know we've got a cutter deck already, a good cutter deck uh, from the out front rider we make. It's things like steering and power takeoffs and stuff. So anyway, I got back off holiday and I was absolutely delighted to see that they've got a mock-up of a chassis on the floor built with a console on it and a steering wheel set on it. Uh, and the big issue was bonnet. You don't get a bonnet easily. In the back, back in the day when Westwood made one, it, it was a bit of a shocker. It was mm. a bit of bent steel cover with a mold, molding at the front as a grill. I decided we had to do a bit better than that. I made no secret of the fact that the, 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 the prototype would be a prototype and it wouldn't look that way when it went into production. So we did a... We did a, a we, we did an interesting thing. We put a different engine on it than we really intended, just to try and attract some good engine suppliers. So we stuck a, a Kola engine on it, which I never really intended to use because it was quite expensive. But it was completely different than everything else at the show. It had a walkthrough design. It had a rear power takeoff, a power grass collector. It was three models, if I remember rightly. And we literally worked through the night to get this thing done. And so when you had sent these uh, these drawings back from the States, what was the timeline you, you gave your guys? What was it, three? I think we got months? about six weeks to deliver. Six weeks. Yeah, we have, three, we have six weeks, and it won't be perfect, but we'll, we're, it's even going to be harder after that because we've got about another six weeks before we need to be in production. And I'm, I'm basing that on the 12 weeks it would take me to get shipments of proper engines out of America and transmissions, which in those days were manual transmissions, they very quickly became hydrostatic transmissions. But the uh, engine suppliers I knew very well. I knew Fred Stratton, uh, Mike Hamilton, who was the, a, an English guy who was their VP. And they came and saw me at Peterborough, which I was looking forward to because I thought they might turn up. <laughs> and, uh, and we did a deal. And it was, it was fascinating the amount of support we got, uh, mainly probably because they were also having their orders cut back a bit. But we, we, we got the job done. And um, obviously the next big thing was winning over the dealers and then more importantly, getting the marketing and the brand going. So um, you, you called, uh, if I'm right, you called that early model Comac or, or something. Yeah, that was, uh, that was like somebody had thrown a load of, num- you know, <laughs> in a, letters in a box and see what they came Sounded up. Eastern European. Actually. It was very Eastern European. Yeah. And, and uh, sadly. But was your company called Countax at the time? Yeah. yeah. It was. And, okay. And it didn't take, um, I, uh, we'll come on to people in a moment, which is the most important part of the whole process, obviously. Of course. I'd taken on Jeremy Sace, who was once upon a time um, with Samuel and Pierce in Richmond, and they used to have the Honda account and then eventually became Westwood's marketing company. So they knew how to sell garden tractors. And Jeremy was a lovely, well, you know him, you know, yeah. ex-Gordon Stone knew he's, he was a dinosaur that could do photography, copyright. Um, make One of the old school, if I might and, say. And knew how to hunt down the AB consumer, which he was our target market. And he looked at me and he said, why are we calling it Comat? I said, I don't know. I said, we run out, <laughs> we run out of ideas. I said, it was so busy trying to make the product. We sort of, the name of it was the afterthought. So we then decided we'd just call it Countax K-Series. And it became the K-series because Jeremy persuaded me it was the strongest letter in the alphabet or something. Yeah. 
Uh, we had a K14 for a 14 horsepower, 16 for a 16 and so on. Um, and that's what we launched. The, the brutal side of it, which um, I'm sure I wouldn't do today, uh, <laughs> but you never know, was I then took all their staff. So we, we had Jeremy, which was great, but I needed a sales team. So um, the, the best guy in the business, as far as I was concerned, was the guy who used to sell me garden tractors, and that was Peter Burnham. Mm. And Peter was their sales director, and he lived nearer to Oxford than he did to Plymouth. Uh, and he's three sales teams. So we, we took, I took, once I'd got him, he got the rest of the sales team. I then took their buying department, which was run by the founder's daughter, all of whom obviously now didn't have much loyalty um, because the company had been sold. And I took their IT department, who was the husband <laughs> of the buyer. So we had a... So it really uh, is who you know, not what you know. Then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had a cracking start in, in those departments. Um, and and the, I guess the, the big thing about the branding and the selling capabilities was that Jeremy says our marketing director really did know where where to spend a pound properly so you'd see these huge great advertising you know you, you'd see pages in a color advertising magazine in the say the sunday times or the telegraph jeremy would do small black and whites everywhere so he would get you know best bang for his buck and all we were interested in doing in those days was getting inquiries and once we got the inquiry we could send them to the dealer and we could send the name and the address of the inquirer to the dealer so that uh, oh and the name of the dealer to the customer so that was a drive that i don't think anyone was expecting what, what, what so, was the uh, dealer reaction from that show at peterborough then harry um we were in the middle it, it's surprising how similar the conditions are uh, to what we got now actually because there's yeah. been there's a recession it was two very dry summers and oddly enough not oddly enough but um like today, there was a war going on. There was the Gulf War. Um, and so, uh, yeah. and I think inflation was well in double figures. So yeah. uh, it wasn't a particularly uh, good time to, to start a business. Well, exactly. And if you can get it done then, you know, yes. it's easier, not harder uh, as we come out of all of that. What what, what was, um, I, I guess we were fairly blinkered in what we wanted to do. We just went for it. And we needed a lot of dealers. We needed a lot of marketing and we needed to make sure that the product came off the line on time. So so our our first big one was Winchester Garden Machinery, who I used to say I sold more than. And they had five branches and Robin and I knew each other very well. So he said, okay, I'll give you an order for 50 machines. And um, what we were not expecting is the negative response from our competitors about that. So he, he being an independent, like all garden machinery dealers, also ordered, I think, 100 Westwards at the same time. Um, and they went to see him and said, we don't want you to be ordering those tractors from Countax. How, they, they very quickly found out. And, of course, we hadn't made one at that point. Robin being Robin just said to them, look, I'm sorry, but I'll order what I like. I always have done. Um, but anyway, they didn't handle it very well. So he phoned me up one day out of the blue. And, again, Robin being Robin said, how about I give you all my winter stock order for garden tractors? how do I know I'm going to get them on January the 1st? I said, well, you won't. You'll get them on January the 15th. And you're not going to, you don't really need them before then, Robin. But I said, that's our production schedule. And I'll tell you what, you can come to the factory and take the first one off the line. And I'll take your picture. And I'm to this day, I can't remember uh, if it was bang on the day, but it was damn close. And he got the first tractors. 
I think the, uh, the the interesting thing with the dealers were that they weren't expecting the product to work as well as it did or be as reliable as it did. And Peter Burnham was extremely good as a sales director because he'd had all the history of failures of new product and always most manufacturers get teething problems. They have to modify things and all the rest of it. Well, it went out and it was solid. And, um, and that was a breath of fresh air for everybody because it was a big question mark. Can he make them? Will they last? You know, will they fall apart? And, and you know, can they make enough of them? Yes. And we managed to get through, tick those boxes. So that was that, was that story, really. How, how, how many were, were you able to produce in that first year? We did 5,000. Did you? Yeah, and it was a bit brave. Um, yes. But we knew the numbers. Um, we were going after at least 50%, which would have been 4,000 of the UK market. Mm-hmm. At that time, the market kept growing for a while, which was good. But at one point, I think it was 12,000. Yes. And and none of the other imports were doing that well. You know, they'd do 500 or 1,000, but nobody really did big numbers. So I think the best best the best import was doing a couple of thousand, maybe two and a half thousand. And that would have been, you know, an empty, an, an American, what we used to refer to as a tin Lizzie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a, a very, a very low cost product that would normally be sold in, in Sears or, and we started claiming market leadership um, a few years later. Um, and it was always, you know, the product was always called Britain's number one selling garden tractor. Yeah. And, and that was probably the peak of our, of our of our branding and our and our marketing coming together, yeah. Um, and the dealers, of course, then would give us some fairly formidable orders. Uh, I, uh, I seem to recall that you, you you had quite a big open day of dealers come to uh, Great Hazley, where I think you you took over a local cricket field and and invited them to drive them, or in other words, break them. Yes. And was that successful? Did yes. they? Did they? They always try and break them. I don't know why. Um, I was born in <laughs> Scotland, but it was always the Scottish dealers. I think probably is a bit more rugged up there. Who would always try and break them? And uh, it was it was good. No, it, that worked extremely well. We had a lot of open days over the years. Um, in the end, we used to do conference centres at Formula One Williams, and who were up, up the road from us and they had banks and things and they had a lot of graphs and we could take them around the conference center. Yeah. So that was, um, and, uh, and, and around the museum. So it was a good place for a, for a conference. How easy was it to convert your factory that was making attachments, um, into a full scale production for, for, for tractors? Um, it, it presumably met, was quite an expensive operation. Was it? And were you getting good support from the, from the money men at that stage? No, I think uh, it, it was it, the extraordinary thing was that we'd built and opened a factory before this happened. So we were gearing ourselves up uh, to give ourselves some space. And we built this 24,000 square foot factory. Um, and eventually we built another 25 and yeah. joined it all up and it became a hundred and something or other, but 130,000, I think in the end, but the, and on that journey, we also bought the forestry house out and we bought the plant. So we ended up with a big freehold site. But whilst having built that first factory, I mean, this is an indication of how things have changed. I, we built it ourselves. So we were the contractor and we just employed a lot of small subcontractors. The battle to get planning was 
was not as difficult as I thought because everybody wanted more employment. So we got that done. And then uh, as we were building it, Westwood sold. So that was that was the, the kind of element of uh, or the direction of travel. But one Friday afternoon at four o'clock, having got planning permission, I had a call from reception to say there was a gentleman from NatWest Bank wanted to see me. I can't remember his name. But anyway, he, John somebody. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> he introduced himself and he said, I noticed that you've got planning permission to build this factory. Have you got the funds? I said, no, I haven't actually. I said, I'm about to look at that. I said, we'll, we'll probably build it in the next year or two. He said, well, we'll lend, we'll lend you the money. Um, and it, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was a ridiculous situation. I think it cost us, I think it cost us 700,000 to build a 25. I mean, that's really cheap, but yeah. you know, we did it. We did it. And, um, and it was very quickly worth 2.2 million or something. And they just gave us a mortgage. So, um, and that, you know, if you'd have rented it in that, those days, that would have been about the same price. So it was a great step forward. And this and was, was a factory. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, uh, Harry. And this is a factory. I think it was opened by Michael Heseltine, wasn't it? And, and your, your extension was opened by Princess Anne, if I recall. Yes, the, the, both of those have stories attached to them. I mean, the, the Hesseltine one was great because we were, um, he's very local and, and he's very pro-British manufacturing. And um, we were at the time struggling with the CE marking because everything that you built to sell in Europe at that time, having gone into the into uh, <laughs> into the opposite of Brexit. It's quite funny how all the rules and regulations snatch you up, and now they don't go away, even though you're out of it. But the, uh, in fact, the opposite. But the, I, when I mentioned to him about the CE mark, he, I said, look, you know, what is it? So we were bringing in um, some products from Italy, and I remember asking the Italian guy, what's happened to the CE mark? We need a CE mark. He said, ah, it's no problem. I send them in the post. So it was no, it was, it was, it was not as if he needed to pass any regulations. He just put a sticker on it. And that's, that was kind of the trend around Europe at the time. Um, whereas we had to, in this country, we always gold plated rules. So we had to go through noise regulations and approve various tests. And it was easy, you know, huge amount of expense. And I remember, um, I remember my, so Michael, as he knows, Michael has time coming back to me and saying, I was a really positive meeting. I thoroughly enjoyed opening your factory. And uh, I'm going to look into that EC mark for you. <laughs> Got it the wrong way around. <laughs> the Princess Anne opening was probably, um, I mean, she's, she's a very hardworking lady, as everybody knows. And it was not the first time we'd met her because um, we sponsored a jump at Gatcombe Park for Zara. And uh, she also had some product on display up there always. So we took our, eventually we took our Red Echo Power Tool product up there. But she was uh, delightful. I mean, she she knew quite, we had Sterling Moss at the opening of that one. And she yes, I recall. I was, uh, I, I remember coming and, and talking to Sterling's wife as well, who, uh, Moss, who, yeah. who, I, who I kept fed, fed with drinks, but uh, yeah. Well, they're just, they're just delightful. They were delightful. Absolutely. And, and um, so Sterling's, persuaded me I had to have the race car there. He said, look, it's part of your life, boy. Get your race car there. And before I knew it, all Princess Anne wanted to talk about was racing. <laughs> and I introduced her, as you do, for the protocol is always you have a group of people, one person introducing from each group. And I introduced her to Sterling, who obviously she'd met many times. And uh, he was very complimentary of her horse riding the weekend before because she stood in for her daughter, Zara, and she came third. She said, oh, that was just some novice thing. 
And then she said, but I want to talk about racing. Um, and before you know it, I said, well, all of these people here are ex-carters. Even Sterling was a carter. Oh, she said, I love karting. She said, I even like a bit of off-road karting. And she was she was just so wonderful to be with. But the, the, the bit that did it for me was um, we had a PR lady, Jane Atkinson. And Jane was, she was once Lady Di's only PR lady, for example. And she and I found her at JCB and she was doing a bit of work for us. And she set this up as she did many things, including, you know, the launches at Chelsea Flower Show and things. She would she'd be very good at dealing with the press. And she said to me on the day, you need two things. One, you need a royal loo, which you can rent and park. And the second, you need a table for the press and get them to leave her alone because she hates them. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I did this. I put, we parked the press on one table with a huge marquee outside. And when she arrived and introduced herself, she was all bright and cheerful with every table. And then she looked over. And, of course, you don't not know who the press are, do you? They've all got dirty trainers on and cameras around their neck. And she just looked at me and she said, oh, and who are they? <laughs> I said, well, obviously the press man. She said, yes, but they're important to you, aren't they? You know, meaning I'll go and talk to them if I have to. I said, no, no, there's no problem. <laughs> but but Jane had been very smart and organized in their shop so they all got the shot they were coming for um when she went in to do the speech in the factory but it was different it was a, it, it was a moment i'll never forget because jane said to me she said your plant is going to shut down when she arrives and i said how do you mean she said, you'll be out here a pin drop she said you're going to walk around everybody will just down tools and not say a word she said and your factory will just suddenly get quieter and quieter and quieter so you can hear a pin drop, and that was exactly what happened. <laughs> really? By the time we got to the assembly line where she was going to stand up and, and do the official opening, you could have heard a pin drop. It was very, very funny. And there you are. Fascinating stuff from Harry about those first couple of years of the creation of Countax. Not quite the seat of the pants, but with a dash of the daring as befits a motor racer. Now, in part two, we'll hear more anecdotes from the Countax years from Harry of the time that he beat an estate agent and property developer to win the BBC Business Survivor of the Year Award, of creating a garden tractor in association with the leading Formula One team and Sterling Moss creating a stir on the Countach stand at Chelsea Flower Show, and of a successful attempt on the world land speed record for a lawnmower on Pendine Sands and touching 100 miles an hour. Now I'm tempted to say those were the days but that would only bring attention to my age. So I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is Inside Agriturf. Inside Agriturf.